this is your first Sunday worshiping with us, welcome. And we also want you to know that during the summer months and even through the fall, we are preaching from the lectionary text according to the Gospel of Luke. We've made it to the 10th chapter. And Luke is familiar to many of us because of the stories that have really become sort of cliched to us, as in last week's parable of the Good Samaritan, or later in the 15th chapter when we come to the story of the prodigal son, and this morning's text, story of two women, sisters, Mary and Martha. Unfortunately, as we've heard this story, we on the surface, think, oh yeah, we know that. That's simply about someone who's called to be contemplative in her life versus someone who's a busybody and overly active. And, uh, and we're supposed to see that Martha is uh, in, in the wrong and Mary's in the right. But you should know by now that Luke never leaves us on the surface and goes more deeply into what's important. This morning's text, I hope, allows us to be led by the Spirit into what is most important. Beginning in the 38th verse of the 10th chapter, may God open up to us an understanding of his word. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by many of her tasks, so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But Jesus answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. So the flip note version is, slow down, listen to Jesus. Quit doing so much. Well, I want more than that. So I'll just come out and say it. I think I choose Martha's way more than Mary's. The contemplative Mary versus the get it done Martha. I choose Martha because I'm the kind of person that just likes to do things, especially when there's a crisis. I'm still reminded my, my girls that in 1989, when Hurricane Hugo blew through Charleston and then up into Charlotte, where we were living at the time, we had plenty of warning when I put the chairs down on the porch and locked everything down as well as could be. But we were not prepared for the destruction that that storm caused. We managed it through the night, hearing the terrible thunder and roar of the of the wind 
Waking up the next morning, I immediately stuck my head out the door and saw that our neighbor's giant oak had fallen across the street into our front yard. The other neighbor's oak had fallen across the street into the, across the street yard, and our house is in between them. Every pine tree that I could see seemed to be broken in half like matchsticks halfway up as if a tornado had warred its way through, which in fact it had. Now, facing all of that, oh yeah, there was a, probably a foot and a half of shredded leaves all over every square inch that you could see. I skied my way into the uh, shed to get a saw that I had there. It was about that long, had one of those bow handles on it. It had deep teeth in it. And I went out to that oak that was this big around, and I got to do something. And I began to saw the the limbs. My family was laughing at me, but I'm doing something, you see, and after about 20 minutes of that, I finally came to see the futility of it, and so I ran inside and got my wallet and jumped in my car to go to Sears before everybody got there to buy a chainsaw, only I remembered I couldn't get out. So I called my neighbor who could, coached him into letting me borrow his car and made my way to Sears. That was open, where I bought a chainsaw, and I came back and began to tussle with that big old oak tree. Of course, I didn't get very far. It was way bigger than the blade on my saw. So I finally gave up, but I'm the kind of person that has to do something. I like Martha. My daughter Megan is the same way. We could always tell when she was a toddler, when she was exhausted, because the tireder she got, the faster she got. She would run from this and that at 90 miles a minute later in the night, and we knew then she's toast. Pick her up, put her to bed, she's out like a light. There's something in the DNA, which is probably why the Goyers are nicknamed the Go-Go Goyers. I like to do something. In the go-go-do department, I ran across an article in Sports Illustrated several years ago about a guy named John Hibben who played 572 rounds of golf in, 19, in 2006. Now in Florida, that would not be that big a deal. 572 rounds divided by 365 is 1.502, 1.5 rounds of golf, and usually around 18 holes. So that's 27 plus holes of golf a day. But you see, the problem is he lived in Minnesota which means the golf course is open only five months a year. To meet 517 rounds, he has to play at least three, average almost four, you do the math, and in some cases he would play five. 365 days, he'd play five rounds of golf, he'd get up at three o'clock in the morning to meet his quota, and he would end when night had fallen. When asked if he was married, he said no, divorced. Can you imagine? Now, I know that that story is a little extraordinary, but, you know, for us professional puritanical Presbyterians who have been taught since birth to produce, perform, and persevere, I don't think it's that far out of line. And now that we have technology in our hands 24-7, where we can have access to an unlimited amount of information and our business, or whatever our relationships are, I think it's probably germane 
unless we are forced to sit down, slow down, by reason of illness or lost job or retirement or depression, we don't do so well as marriage. So I'm not alone claiming I like Martha. Oh, but there's a cost. This is the place that you have come to know for me that I pull out the prophetic punch. The warnings about this, and I will not disappoint. I was reading an article last week about the new way of intimate relationships in college, on college campuses. It's called hooking up. And this article was about the girls, not the guys, on campuses. It's the University of Penn. Uh, girls were interviewed saying this is the way of our life now. We find a friend with benefits, as they say, and we give them a call and they come over and we hook up. And the only rule is that there cannot be any intimate relationship, any emotional attachment, because you see, we don't have time for emotional relationships. And so as long as they know the rules and we know the rules, everything's fine. No emotional attachments. Just no time for it. And the story went on to say that in these cases, of course, usually the guys end up getting what they want and the girls do not. And this is all done in the name of women's liberation. There's just no time for intimate emotional relationships. But there's time for relationships. I suspect as it is for all of us, that when those women finally have a chance to slow down, and begin to think back over some of their decisions, they will realize how demeaning and destructive and dangerous that behavior is, as should every man, as should each of us, which might be, in fact, the reason that they and we stay so busy so we do not have to slow down and begin to think through the decisions we have made, the deeper truth about the things we do. When Jesus entered the house of Mary and Martha, it was Martha's house, but Mary was a part of it, a sister, we don't understand how radical an act that was, and Luke wants us to. Think about it. A single man entering the house of two single women in a day when the division between male and female was so great that you did not even address a woman eye to eye if you met her on the road. And Jesus enters this house. I mean, thank goodness there were no iPhone cameras there to take a scandal snapshot of opportunity and a provocative headline. While there, Martha and Mary aren't sure what to do with Jesus, so they feel the need to be hospitable. I mean, Jesus has already spent several chapters, as we learn, talking to us about hospitality. Let's be hospitable. So they get in the kitchen and they start pulling things out of the shelves to make something to eat for him as he waits in the living room. Martha hands Mary some more herbs. She goes in to serve Jesus, and Jesus says, Thank you, Mary, sit down. And Mary sits at Jesus' feet. 
No big deal, right? Martha's in there working. Her fingers to the bone, as my mother would say. And Mary's in there reaping the rewards of sitting at the feet of Jesus. Except for the fact that no woman in those days ever sat at the feet of Jesus. No woman was allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi. Immediately, Luke has just turned again a thousand years of social and ritual taboo on its head and shown us that Jesus invited Mary to sit at his feet, and she did, the posture of a student with a teacher at his feet. So when Martha walks out and sees this, it's really not about the fact that Mary's not serving. It's about the fact that Mary and Jesus has just, have just turned over the whole cultural milieu of, of religious righteousness. So she says to Jesus, really talking to Martha, you need to get my sister out of there, back into the kitchen where she belongs, and help me. And Jesus says to her, you never quite know how to, how to say it so that it doesn't sound like it's chiding too much, but you know, did he say, Martha, Martha? I don't think so. Or with more gentleness, Martha, Martha, you're busy with so many things. You're missing the one thing that matters. The one thing that cannot be taken away. It's a powerful story about liberation and justice and about sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary sat at his feet, and he taught her. You know, there's a, there's a need for living a more contemplative lifestyle, for being more aware and present and attentive to our world and the moment that we are in. I need to remind myself of that all the time. Uh, six months after... Uh, tragic death of my first wife, a friend of ours uh, came to me and offered me his mountain house, his big canoe, uh, for two days of uh, just downtime. And so I took him up on it and drove up and sat in the house and tried to just be contemplative. And I sat there in the chair and, and prayed some, and I, and I pulled out a journal and I wrote a couple of sentences, and then I prayed some more and I looked out the window and uh, by now I was bored to tears and it's just 10 o'clock in the morning and so I decided I needed to be a little more prayerful so I prayed some more and there I sat and by noon I'm like pulling my hair out so I couldn't stand it. I rummaged through the whole house to find something that I could read and I found this book on the per uh, exact perfect golf swing and so for the next two days I read this book, found the golf club in the garage and worked on my golf swing. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Don't look at me like what? It's hard to be contemplative because too many things start flooding in. So we stay busy. So think about the implications of this text for our world. Just all right, let's just start with us. I can't help but lament that we don't spend enough time at Jesus' feet. I don't. 
You don't spend enough time just sitting and listening and discerning, reflecting at the feet of Jesus. And I wonder how our lives might be different if they did. Instead of just getting caught up in the momentum of the moment, and just jumping in with both feet, we stopped. We sat. We listened and reflected upon our life and maybe what Jesus was trying to teach us. You see, the momentum of the moment is often a powerful and dangerous thing. You're sitting around with some friends, drinking some adult beverages, and one of you says, well, let's go do fill in the blank. And the next thing you know, caught up in the momentum of that fellowship, you're out doing it to great regret. The momentum of the moment picks everyone up, and the next thing you know, you're carried away. You're in an argument with a friend, or maybe it's a spouse, and it escalates. And so you, you go to your computer and you begin to type out an email. You're caught up in the momentum of the moment. And you write some things that you probably would not write ordinarily, but you're angry, and this person deserves it. And so you just keep writing, and the momentum of the moment pulls you into it, and you punch sin. How much better would it have been if you'd chosen instead to sit at the feet of Jesus? Just a little bit. I ran into an article recently written by uh, a preacher uh, from Alban Institute. He came this week, and it was titled, Conversations That We Failed to Have. The first sentence read, Sometimes the most important conversations are the ones we failed to have. He then points out, as an example, in May... 2013, an issue of the Atlantic Magazine, when the contributing editor, editor Jonathan Ross recounts his father's last hospitalization, the article titled was How Not to Die. His father was suffering from an advanced neurological disorder and was admitted to the hospital for an MRI. Soon he was in trouble, abducted like an alien the author explains. He was bundled into bed, tied to tubes, and banned from walking without help or taking anything by mouth. No one asked him what he wanted. After a few days and a test that turned up nothing, he left the hospital and vowed never to go back. Rauch said that what failed to happen to his father failed to happen to too many of us. It's what medical professionals term deconversion. Roush's father needed the momentum of medical maximalism to slow down. You got that? The momentum of medical maximalism to slow down long enough for a social worker or a well-caring physician to sit down with him and his son and explain patiently and in English his condition, his treatment options, to learn what his goals were for the time he had left and to establish what kind of treatment he really desired. The question was never asked. They just needed to sit down at the feet of Jesus for a little bit. It's not just medicine, of course. It's also law, a couple finally decide to get a divorce, and the next thing you know, they are caught up in the momentum of legal maximization 
each having their own attorney, each spending gobs of money. If only the two of them could have spent a little time at least of Jesus. You, go to, you decide you got to go to college and you're caught up in the momentum of high school maximalization and so you figure out, I'm going to go to the best college I can after all. I mean, that's what this is all about. So you don't care too much about how much it costs or about the cost productivity of it. You just get caught up in the momentum of it. When in fact, maybe a little time at the feet of Jesus might have been helpful. Think about the momentum that the news our day pulls us into. It's like a, a, a tornado vortex that just whisks us up and spirals us into this emotionally fear-based place of how we need to sit at Jesus' feet. The momentum of politics and how it leads us to be so nasty and ugly to those that we don't agree with. Why can't we sit at Jesus' feet? I think of churches, of course, maybe even especially churches, churches like Riverside, who one of our mayoral candidates said about us, there are churches that do mission and then there's Riverside, which is to say that we're Martha. And that's a good thing, because Jesus had just finished saying in the Good Samaritan that we're called to do likewise. So that's a good thing. But it's also a good thing for us to sit at the feet of Jesus. And so I think of churches, and everybody gets excited, you know. Let's do, let's do another capital campaign, or, or let's get some momentum for a new mission, or, or you know what, we're seeing how all these churches are going to, to more modern worship style and contemporary worship, so let's get rid of the geezer with white hair, even though he's not bad looking, and hire one of those young guys that preaches in t-shirts and blue jeans and likes to have rock and roll behind him. No, no, no. Let's spend some time at the feet of Jesus before we decide that. Maybe the real power of this morning's passage is that it challenges us to sit at Jesus' feet before we do anything that matters. Even before we prepare the meal which in fact seems to be counterintuitive to us who are taught to be do-gooders. Somehow we've gotten it backwards. We want understanding before faith, good works before we understand the meaning of grace. We want to care for the world before we pray for the world. We want our politics before we understand what it means to be obedient to God. We want wealth before we get wisdom or even before we work, we want righteousness before we learn how to forgive. We want to be, to do, to have, and to conquer before we learn that we first must lose ourselves at Jesus' feet. The next time you feel like you're being caught up in the momentum of something, anger, fear, even a good idea, just stop. Time out. Stop what you're doing and find a quiet place and sit down at Jesus' feet and just listen. And I suspect we will find the one thing that is needed that cannot be taken away.